In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Abortion rights and the political fallout. That is why today we suspended temporarily our fundraising to make sure we were directing resources to five organizations. We want those who still need those services right now to have those services. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the podcast we want you to depend on for the most on-the-ground coverage of the 2022 election. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders here at the AJC. A reminder, if you're just listening to us for the first time, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Coming up later, we'll dig into the $1.5 billion Rivian package and what opponents have to say about it. But first, our lead story the future of abortion rights after the draft opinion from the Supreme Court about the Roe v. Wade case has completely upended Georgia's campaign trail. Stacey Abrams has even paused, temporarily paused her campaign fundraising solicitations to raise money for abortion rights groups in Georgia. Georgia in 2019, as you pointed out, passed a forced pregnancy bill, a ban on all abortions after six weeks with very limited exceptions. And what that ban reveals is their intention going forward. If they are willing to limit it at six weeks now, if they see trigger laws that allow for unilateral ban, I have no doubt they will try to pursue that. And so it is critical that we not only elect me as the next governor of Georgia, but that we use this opportunity to elect a state house and a state senate that will let us roll back these egregious laws. Regardless of what happens with this decision, the leaked opinion or not, we know what the intention is. Brian Kemp has been unequivocal about his position, as has David Perdue, and our responsibility is to do what we can to protect a woman's right to choose, to protect the ability to make choices about our dignity, our welfare, and our health, and this is the moment to get that work done. Uh, Patricia, Democrats up until recently have been struggling to find a message that can mobilize voters. I mean, Stacey Abrams' campaign hinged on expanding Medicaid, but that was the same message that her campaign in 2018 and and Jason Carter's campaign in 2014 um, hinged upon. It doesn't mean it's not a a powerful message for Democrats. It just means that with rising inflation, with high fuel prices, with Joe Biden's sagging approval ratings, with all the issues, all the headwinds Democrats are facing, um, you know, it's hard to break through. It seems like, or at least Stacey Abrams' campaign believes, and so do other senior Democrats, that this this potential, this yet-to-be-issued decision that we have reasonable confidence will 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 emerge in some form or fashion, um, is giving Democrats this new unifying midterm message. 
It really is. And the most effective messages are the organic ones, the ones that you don't have to pull test. You don't have to wonder how um, a significant number of people would feel about something. As soon as this leak came out from Politico um, that the Supreme Court could overturn Roe v. Wade, the reaction, um, not just among elected officials, but among um, just average women, was immediate. And it is the first time that many women in their lifetimes have considered the uh, reality that abortion could be inaccessible, especially in a state like Georgia, um, where uh, Stacey Abrams said, and I think it's accurate, and I think Republicans would agree that banning all abortions is the goal. Um, Now, this is a conversation that has been really abstract, mostly for women in particular. Um, uh, It has been something that was considered settled by the Supreme Court and uh, was uh, being uh, kind of changed around the edges, but not the fundamental right. And so you have an entire generation of women who have been brought up and told um, you can excel, you are equal. In some cases, you are better than men. Um, And now we have a mostly male legislature talking about taking away a fundamental right that many women believe is theirs and is not the legislature's to take away. And so um, I think that that's a message that will galvanize voters. If you think that, um, think back to the 2018 election when Brian Kemp won by 50,000 votes, how many women in Georgia will put the rest of their politics on hold to say, I'm not okay with the legislature and the governor and the state going in this direction. Um, I do think it will be a powerful message for them. And I know that's why Democrats are jumping on it so quickly. On the other side, you have contested Republican primaries where those Republicans believe this issue is galvanizing for them, especially in their base. What they say in November will be crucially important to the direction of this state in the future. And, and Patricia, this shows you too, you know, whenever we get asked, oh, what's your predictions for, for November? I always tell people, we have no idea because we don't know what outside forces on the campaign will really realign politics. And, you know, I always tell people around this time, two years ago, it, what was the big narrative? It was going to be impeachment. It was going to be a referendum on whether or not the impeachment process against former President Trump was was the right move to do. And then it became the pandemic. And then it became the movement for social justice. And, and then it became all, uh, law enforcement. And then it became all, a myriad of issues. Um, in this case now, we are seeing right now, at this moment, um, abortion rights and the battle over over women's right to choose is becoming the, 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 the paramount issue in these campaigns. And Senator Raphael Warnock, a pro-choice pastor, is also right in the thick of things. Um, he said to the AJC that this leaked Supreme Court draft opinion uh, should concern all of us. Women are devastated by this, as, as they should be. And this has implications not only for women and reproductive rights. Uh, I think when you look at the framework of what Alito argues, it opens the door uh, for revisiting, undermining all other kinds of uh, established precedent that could impact workers, members of the LGBT community, uh, equality of marriage, a whole range of issues, voting rights. So um, if they come for me in the morning, they'll come for you at night. And we've got to build the kind of coalition that's necessary to push hard against this. And our Washington correspondent, Tia Mitchell, also asked Senator Warnock 
if this should give the Senate reason to eliminate the filibuster rule to vote specifically on legislation that would protect abortion rights? I think that no Senate rule and no Senate procedure is more important than people's constitutional rights. And it is our duty as one of the three co-equal branches of government to find a way to stand with the American people, 70% of which believe that it is a woman's right to choose. So Patricia, we've already heard from Stacey Abrams saying that this issue will literally reshape her campaign. And we've already seen evidence of that. Um, But Senator Warnock is, he's going beyond just supporting abortion rights. Now he's also saying that he would take legislative action to roll back the 60 vote filibuster rule um, to pass meaningful substantive legislation um, to roll that back to allow a vote for for protecting abortion. This is a pretty big move. It's a big move um, with the caveat that even with 50 votes in the Senate, the Democrats would be unlikely to actually be able to pass a bill like that. Um, the also the other uh, problem I always think about for Democrats, if you eliminate the filibuster now and lose control of the Senate, they will lose the only leverage they have in the Senate if they go into the Senate minority. And so that is the risk that you take when you change these Senate rules. And it's happened to Republicans when they've changed the rules and it's happened to Democrats as well. So I know that that is in the back of more senior senators' minds as well. Um, What could Republicans change without the filibuster that has not even entered into their thinking yet? Um, But uh, when we talk about what could change, um, this idea that overturning one precedent could open the door to overturning all precedents. Um, It's not a concept just being floated by Democrats. Uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott floated yesterday the idea that Texas may take uh, take a run at eliminating the constitutional requirement to provide free public education to every resident in the state. Um, that is something that is upheld by the by the U.S. Supreme Court and um, uh, kind of dictates to the state that anybody in the state, including undocumented immigrants and their children, have the right to a free public education. Um, The fact that a Republican governor is talking about using this moment to um, change that fundamental right um, that we really do consider um, just, again, something that we take for granted over the last many decades, um, you can see how this opens the door to possibilities never considered in our lifetimes. It's really something. And so this will be a, to your point, I think that has certainly upended the election and not just on the conversation of abortion rights, but uh, primarily now, but possibly others. Yeah. And the big caveat we we must mention is we haven't seen this ruling yet, right? We've seen the draft opinion. It was dated in February. Um, It has been authenticated um, by Chief Justice Roberts, but he also said it's not final. And uh, we could see we could see it mutate and, and transform in, in ways big and small, but um, it it was not a sh- it was not stunning for people who are close court watchers to see this this at least a version of this of this opinion come forward. It what was what was perhaps the most stunning part was this the unprecedented nature of this leak, and that's when I want to get to the next part of the conversation. The GOP response has been somewhat muted because most of most Republicans in Georgia and nationwide. Um, maybe if, if there is a hallmark to their response, it's condemning the leak, feeling like it's trying to intimidate the conservative jurists to change their opinion. I'm um, talking about how this this breach, this punctured the the bubble of of privacy that is 
that has long surrounded the institution of the U.S. Supreme Court. But at the same time, you know, we have Governor Kemp um, reminding uh, voters that under under his watch, under his tenure, one of the first major acts he did was sign into law uh, anti-abortion uh, restrictions that that were Im- almost immediately blocked by the federal court system because of Roe v. Wade. And then you had David Perdue um, going a step further. Let's listen to David Perdue from Rutledge at a campaign stop a few days ago. Since 1973, we've been waiting for this uh, to happen. Yeah. A lot of us have been praying about it. Uh, my wife, yeah. you, um, my wife and I know that nothing is more precious than life. Uh, we have two boys and three grandsons. We've been involved in crisis pregnancy uh, help over the years, but. Um, I'm elated with the decision. If in fact it comes down, I thought we we saw today the Chief Justice confirm that the rumor was was right, and so um, when that comes down, if I were governor, when that ruling comes down, I would call the General Assembly back in and ask them to eliminate all abortion in the state of Georgia. That's yeah. where we are. Patricia, this gives David Perdue yet another wedge issue against Governor Brian Kemp. You know, we've heard him say he wouldn't support the Rivian project that the governor supported, that he would eliminate the state income tax, um, uh, you know, a, a step that Governor Kemp hasn't endorsed, um, that he would back Buckhead Cityhood, um, a step that Governor Kemp has not supported yet. Um, and now he's saying that the governor should call lawmakers into a special legislative session to ban all abortions if this ruling comes down. But, you know, Patricia, from having covered all this stuff, you know, the reality is that the, the, the 2019 law, um, that restricts abortions as early as six weeks, um, not a total outright ban, right, um, was a fight enough. I mean, we had, it was this emotionally divisive debate, just fraught uh, with tears on the floor of the House. Um, you had a number of Republicans defect, um, either abstain from voting or vote against this measure. It passed with one vote to spare in the Georgia House. So it is no easy prospect to just say, oh, yeah, let's use our Republican majorities to ban abortion outright, especially when you have to consider how many Republican women um, were on the fence about this legislation privately and publicly to begin with way back in 2019. Yes. And following uh, 2019 and passing that bill through, Republicans did have losses. They lost some of their members in suburban districts. And one of the strongest supporters of that bill was P.K. Martin in Gwinnett County, um, lost his seat to Nikki Merritt, a Democrat. Um, And uh, I was going back and watching a video of the debate in the Senate over that bill, um, which, uh, again, uh, would limit abortion for women to uh, between about five and six weeks before most women know they're pregnant um, would also give personhood uh, to embryos in Georgia, which is a kind of opens up a number of legal rights for those embryos and really unprecedented in the state of Georgia. Um, And PK Martin's speech on the floor was like a lot of uh, like nearly all of the Republican men on the floor uh, really talking about his own personal religious values Um, that did not, play well in the general election. And I think that Republicans know they lost some seats. If not that specific seat, they did lose some seats, I think, over pushing that bill in those uh, rapidly diversifying metro uh, districts, um, particularly when women ran against those incumbent men. And I think that uh, there is some reluctance within the Republican caucus to go down this road months before the November elections. Uh, it, It introduces a level of risk that is um, uh, 
really something. But it also does give David Perdue a way to do what was really not thought possible, which was to get further to the right of Brian Kemp on the abortion issue. It really didn't there. This this has not been an area where he where Purdue really bothered to um, challenge Kemp because I mean, how could you how could you get more conservative than where Brian Kemp already is on this issue? But by calling for a total ban um, after the governor has signed something with uh, narrow exceptions um, actually does do that. You know, and I, I got a call from a very conservative Republican after this ruling came out <clears throat> and after the aftermath of this of this draft opinion came out, expressing shock that so many Republicans, not just David Perdue, but Herschel Walker and the other five Republican Senate candidates um, running to compete against Raphael Warnock, all four Republican lieutenant gubernatorial candidates, all of them have all supported a a total ban on abortion, even for cases of incest, rape, when the life of the mother is at risk. All that is just even the Georgia Life Alliance. They're they're even you know very very long-standing anti-abortion groups that do not take that position. That are not pushing for a total ban. They're pushing for 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 definitely more restrictions, but just not restrictions that go as far as what we're hearing David Perdue and other Republicans now advocate. Republicans running for statewide office. I have to agree with that. I was surprised that there were not there was not more nuance in this conversation among the uh, Republican candidates. If you get into the polling that the AJC did on this issue specifically in January, uh, 73% of women in Georgia wanted to see Roe v. Wade upheld by the Supreme Court. Um, That is a huge number. That means that uh, if you kind of get again further into the polling, 44% of Republicans want to see Roe v. Wade upheld. Uh, so there is some nuance on this issue, even among Republican voters, that was not reflected in that uh, Senate debate. Um, and when you get into a statewide conversation ahead of November, that is very different than the tone that you want to be setting right you know, weeks before your Republican primary. So they have really taken a position from which there is not a trail of breadcrumbs to return to the middle. There is, they have taken um, on an extremely gray issue for some voters, they've taken a very black and white position on this. And I'm just theorizing here, but maybe that's why the governor's reaction is a little bit more muted because he's already framing himself, maneuvering himself for a general election matchup. And he's he's certainly not um, dismayed by this draft opinion um, but look, as you said, our polls, polls not just in in twenty uh, in, in twenty twenty two, but also back in twenty nineteen. So it shows the solid sort of trend line. Seventy percent of, of of Georgia voters um, oppose uh, overturning Roe v. Wade. Yeah, well, it is you know, and it's not just a political issue. It's not just a political talking point. When they're talking about a total ban, you are saying. Uh, even in the cases of medical emergency, even in the case where a medical doctor has said this woman will die if she brings a baby to term, um, even in the case of um, sort of fatal fetal abnormalities, there are so many issues and nuances that women know about that men don't, especially (laughs) in a political conversation and are not acknowledging. And so I think this is so much more complicated than um, is being reflected in the debate. And um, again, there's going to be, there's no return to the middle on this conversation once you've taken a position like Herschel Walker has. Yeah. And on the flip side, when um, Tia Mitchell, our Washington correspondent, asked Stacey Abrams um, whether she would support any limits on abortion, whether let's say, um, you know, late term abortions, 
Um, she said that is not a decision that politicians should make. That should be a decision between a woman, her family, and her doctor. While we were talking about David Perdue, I want to get to another part of the governor's race. Uh, it's a big bone of contention. Now we know the details, the $1.5 billion state and local incentive package to attack Rivian. It's already something that David Perdue has opposed, but now that the, the, the full extent of the package has come out, it's the largest ever in state history. Um, I was expecting it to be closer to a billion, <laughs> but it's it's 1.5, and it didn't come out until after the last debate. So you can you can speculate on the timing there. But David Perdue uh, almost immediately made a beeline out to Rutledge, the closest city to where the Rivian deal, uh, Rivian plant will be built. And this is what he had to say. One is that the local community, you, were not consulted. You weren't brought in. You weren't engaged in it. They didn't ask your opinion about anything. Schools, water, roads, none of that was brought to your attention and discussed in the early days. And the second question I had was how much? I mean, before you can evaluate an economic deal for 7,000 jobs, you had to at least know what was being invested. And they wouldn't tell us. For four months, they haven't told us. And then the first day after the debate, Yesterday, they come out with an announcement with the governor beating his chest that he is paying to George Soros and Rivian $1.5 billion. Patricia, what, what David Perdue has had a struggle with, um, with this issue and with Buckhead, Cityhood, is why voters around the state would care. I mean, why, why should voters up in North Georgia or, or rural Georgia care about Buckhead, Cityhood? And why do voters in, let's say, Columbus or in Albany care about um, a $5 billion Rivian project. Well, now he's got this argument that, hey, you're paying for it with this with this $1.5 billion incentives. And let's let's be clear, a portion of that is from the state. About $700 million is local incentives. But either way, we're talking a lot of money um, in public incentives. Um, the state has a clawback. The state can claw back these incentives in, 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 if Rivian doesn't live up to its promise. Um, but Patricia, do you think this will this will resonate to voters in, let's say, Macon or in Metro Atlanta who who aren't living on in vicinity of this major development? I think it's a good way to frame this. It's a good way to at least broaden it out past uh, the people who live in Rutledge, Georgia. And if you ask the rest of Georgia where Rutledge is, none of them know. <laughs> to be honest with you, um, so it's a beautiful town. Needed, though I've been there yeah, many it's times. gorgeous. It's fat. It's beautiful. That whole area is beautiful. And by the way, that's why the people of Rutledge don't want a huge car plant there. <laughs> <laughs> because it is so nice. And they probably um, don't want too many Metro Atlantans to go there either. So. No, they really don't. They really do not. Um, but I think it's a smart way to broaden this issue out. And it's not irrelevant. I mean, $1.5 million to a private company that has gobs of private investment is, is going to be a little hard for uh, voters paying attention to wrap their head around. Um, so I think it is a smart way to broaden this issue out. Um, Governor Kemp obviously made this decision to uh, sweeten the pot for Rivian to get them to Georgia because there was an enormous amount of competition to bring them here. Um, we also we're really, you know, over time, we will begin to know if this was a good idea or a bad idea. If Rivian actually becomes a successful car company and this ends up being a long term investment, that was smart for um, for Georgia to invest in. Uh, in the meantime, David Perdue doesn't need this to flip. 25% of Georgia voters for him. He just needs to keep Governor Kemp under 50% to live to fight another day. You know, could this shave off one half of 1%? That would be great for him. You know, I think it is a, I think it's a good 
message. It's a good economic message. It's the first time that his argument that uh, Georgia shouldn't give incentives to uh, uh, companies coming to Georgia. That that makes very little sense to Republican voters um, who are used to seeing these kinds of deals struck. But to see it in black and white, to see the money that's going out the door in order to bring somebody in the door um, in a state that already has very low unemployment and lots of private investment uh, piling in, um, I think it's a smart way for Purdue to, to get to that issue. And if you draw a circle, let's say a 10-mile radius around the Rivian plant, that's a whole lot of conservative voters in in that sort of rural slash exurban territory in that area. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about transgender legislation and our reader mailbag. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. We are back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders, along with Tia Mitchell, the AJC. And we are also two of the three contributors to the Morning Jolt. We think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics, and you can get it in your inbox every morning. If you're a subscriber to the AJC, you can join our community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. And your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast so you always know what's really going on. And Patricia, the other day we had a great fun jolt item um, for the lead. Um, Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns, the authors of This Will Not Pass, the new blockbuster book out about the Donald Trump's final days in office and his uh, in the aftermath Um they gave us audio that they obtained in the reporting of this book of a hour-long call between David Perdue, Kelly Leffler, and a bunch of really wealthy donors, as well as Carl Rove. And it, I listened to it, and it was kind of like a flashback <laughs> to uh, to the runoff period uh, that I read about it in my book, Flip, too. Um, but he, David Perdue goes in-depth about the strategy that he was trying to use to guide his campaign. Um, and speaking of strategy... We have some developments about transgender legislation. If you recall, in the in the final minutes of the legislative session, Republicans pushed through a measure that wouldn't explicitly block transgender girls from competing in high school sports, but gave that decision to the Georgia High School Sports Association, the athletic association that sort of governors governs high school sports in Georgia. And not surprisingly, um, the the body voted unanimously. To essentially, I'm going to paraphrase here, but essentially ban transgender girls from competing in women's athletics in high schools. Um, senators had to vote on a transgender bill they never read. And right now you're seeing 
um, Republican candidates for higher office seize on that issue. Senator Butch Miller released an ad saying he is proud that he helped get this bill over the finish line. Girls sports. It's called girls sports for a reason. It's for girls. So she should not have to compete against boys. That's why I wrote the law against letting transgender boys compete in girls' sports. I'm Butch Miller, and I will always protect parents and kids from the woke mob. Patricia, in 2018, it seemed like religious liberty and guns were the sort of cultural dividing line. Now, of course, we have abortion, which we spent part of the show talking about, but it also seems like transgender-related um, issues is is the the other big one for Republicans at least? I mean, it was striking to me at the uh, the Donald Trump rally not so long ago. Herschel Walker basically the first words out of his mouth were about blocking transgender girls from competing in girls' sports in high school. Yeah, this is an issue that really uh, sort of exploded this year, and it was driven by reports out of Pennsylvania about a transgender woman competing in uh, women's swimming at the University of Pennsylvania. It was not driven by local press reports here in Georgia, but that story out of Pennsylvania made so much national news, it started to drive the conversation here locally. And it was something that came up at school board meetings. It was something that came up um, in a number of political venues. Republicans started polling on it. And um, it was just a it was just an absolute slam dunk among Republican voters. They wanted to see something to prevent this in the future. And so um, Republicans have been more than happy to deliver on that. Uh, it really became a big focus of Governor Brian Kemp's actually. So uh, that last day of session, he took the very unusual step of going to give a speech to both the House and the Senate and saying, you guys are not quite done working yet. Here are the things. It's about eight o'clock at night. Here are the things I want to see happen. And transgender sports was at the top of that list. Um, and so uh, there had been a bill drafted that uh, House Speaker uh, David Ralston kind of like took off the shelf and said, here, put this on this bill. Uh, it was added to a bill. Um, House members didn't have time to read it. Senators literally never saw it. They just had their colleagues from the House side texting them and saying that bill you're about to vote on includes a transgender sports uh, ban language. And uh, to your point, it wasn't a ban drafted into Georgia law. It was kicking it over to the Georgia High School Association, um, creating a study committee. Now, the way that was presented, it sounded a little bit like it was going to be a years-long study committee. Maybe that's just the way I heard it. Um, but in fact, it has been a two-month process. We don't even know at this point exactly what the committee looked like or if that committee informed this decision. Um, I haven't seen any reporting on that yet, so I can't say it didn't. Um, but this happened really pretty quickly um, that the uh, High School Association came out with this decision. Unanimous. Uh, it takes the uh, kind of the responsibility off of the legislature, but they certainly did put it in motion to send it over there. This was the previous policy of the association until about two years ago when those decisions were given to individual schools. That ended up not being a workable solution because uh, there was a lot of confusion within school systems when they were competing against each other. Um, and so now uh, this is where it's come down. Um, it's uh, Democrats very, very upset about this. Uh, obviously, LGBTQ groups are uh, livid, uh, but Republicans feel like 
this is the issue they needed going into their own primaries. And we know behind the scenes, Speaker Ralston um, has been an opponent of a sort of outright ban. This to me was a huge signal of the the support, the unity, the the alliance that, that Speaker Ralston has struck with Governor Kemp. I mean, they were bitter rivals in 2019 and now they're they are formidable allies right now. And uh, the speaker was willing to put aside his skepticism for this legislation. Um, and even when I asked him, when he was asked about the uh, wh- whether or not he wanted to see transgender um, girls forbidden from from, uh, from from participating in girls' sports, um, he said that he would urge the board um, to not take that step. Uh, when asked for comment about this development yes the other day when it when it took when it was handed down um the speaker's office had no formal comment so that just shows you um you know it, it's not a surprise to me at least that, that the high school board took this step um but you know when lawmakers pave the way for this sort of legislation we should we shouldn't be surprised when when uh when a basically a political body with close ties to the state's republican leadership makes a move like this um now it is time for our listener mailbag, and we've got a really, really great question, Patricia. I'll start with you. It's from a Sandy Springs native named Maya Agozi Sunshine, and she asks, what's with the early voting surge? Patricia, do you want to take that one first? <laughs> what's with the early voting surge? Uh, sure. Well, I think, uh, first of all, there are a number of contested primaries on both sides of the aisle, driving a lot of interest in these elections. And it's especially highly unusual to have a sitting Republican governor being challenged. And so uh, the turnout is actually higher on the Republican side so far. Uh, But we, of course, have a couple weeks of early voting left, so that could change. I think also um, the emphasis from the state parties has been to try and get people to vote early and to do uh, not vote early and often, just vote early. Um, And so a lot of their voter education has been uh, to inform voters when they can vote, how they can vote, where they can vote. And so there's been an enormous amount of resources, especially um, on the Democratic side. I think they see this also as a little bit of a um, a test run for the general election. That's when all that voter education will really get put into play. Um, But there's been a lot of reporting about changes to election law, um, changes to early voting. And so there's been um, a lot of emphasis on getting people out to the polls as well. So those are my two theories. Maya, um, we've got um, some insight from our AJC colleague, Mark Nisi. Um, At least over the first three days of voting, there is a substantial increase each day um, in 32,000 people cast ballots. And on Wednesday, 32,701 people cast a ballot. That's more than either of the first two days. Uh, overall, Republicans have more interest than Democrats. And that's, again, because of the uh, marquee matchups. 53,000 or so Republicans voted for the first three days, 38,000 Democrats, and uh, about 1,000 nonpartisan contenders. Um, I asked Republican strategist Brian Robinson his thoughts on the surge. And he said he was relieved absentee ballot requests were so low that it suggested there was a low energy election. And he said that this development soothes some of his worry about that. And he has reason to be worried because he's got about 17 candidates in these races that he's working for. Um, it's a high stakes election and it should have significant turnout. Brian went on to say Republicans have shown mistrust of the absentee ballots and we might be starting to see 
a, a continuing migration to in-person system that many Republicans see as more secure. So um, that helps explain some of the uh, the early voting numbers, but we'll continue to watch them here at the AJC. And you can follow Mark Nisi's account, Mark Nisi on Twitter, uh, which always has the latest updates on early voting numbers and all that fun stuff. Um, Patricia, who is up and who's down? Who would you say was up this week? Uh, my who's up this week, Greg, is Stacey Abrams. We learned this week from your reporting that she has raised $11 million, actually a little more than $11 million in the first quarter. That is just a huge haul at this point, uh, especially without a um, contested primary or anything else going on. So um, I think that has gone in her favor. And while um, I know that the abortion decision or possible decision, the leak, is not something that any Democrats are happy about. I think it does uh, give them an issue that will be extremely galvanizing for their voters um, and even for some voters who are not currently their voters. It changes the dynamics of this election that was shaping up to be extremely tough for Democrats. There is a um, there's a piece of this will ga- that will galvanize uh, Democratic voters in a way that was not predicted. So I think that puts her strategically up this week. Um, yeah, and she's starting to cut into Brian Kemp's um, cash lead, despite his giant head start. She didn't get in the race till, of course, December, um, and she's already within reach of of his you know, bank account. Um, he's got a, about ten or so, eleven million dollars. She's got about eight million dollars, so very close there. Um, I'm going to go the other way. Uh, the up for me are conservative activists. Um, you know, they're condemning the leak. They're taking a muted victory lap. But look, I mean, if you give your average conservative activist, a truth serum, they'd say to you they're ecstatic about the possibility that this um, that this draft opinion will some will be issued as a formal opinion, a formal ruling in the coming months. And one of them, Cole Musio of Frontline Policy Action, almost immediately reached out to me and said, "Quote: If this, if true, this leak is everything the pro life movement has been working and praying for." It would mean the implementation of what they call the heartbeat bill and make certain that 2022 is the year of life. So that gives you an idea of how excited um, conservative activists are um, because there's it's been a decades-long campaign legal battle for for many of these frontline conservative activists um, to, to prove in the courts, in the legal system, that in their view, life begins at conception. And this would uh, would be the culmination of that fight um, yep. for them. Patricia, who's down for you? My down for this week has to be Herschel Walker for missing that uh, final debate among uh, U.S. Senate candidates to be represented by an empty podium um, and not take the opportunity to present your views to the primary electorate on a statewide basis before the primary, I think is um, uh, something that he's going to have to be explaining uh, for quite some time. And I think it was a missed opportunity for him to sort of get into that mix, get uh, used to the debate stage, get used to having questions tossed at you um, when it's, uh, that is a skill that is uh, earned, not you're not born with it. I'll put it that way. (laughs) You got to practice. And he's not giving himself a chance to practice. Well, we're gonna we're gonna beat on Herschel Walker while he's down because I'll put him as my down too, but for another reason. Well, I'll echo that because I've never seen. It's one thing to skip a debate, but it's another thing to actually mock the debate while it's going on. And um, 
uh, as I was. And he was the only one to miss the debate. Everybody else, every other candidate was there for every other race. He was. Yeah, I think there's one like random Secretary of State candidate who they just couldn't find. Um, whose name I can't re- recall uh, right now, who who wasn't there. But yeah, he was, I mean, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene showed up, Vernon Jones showed up. So so uh, people who say the media is fake still showed up to the Atlanta Press Club debate. But Herschel didn't, and not only did he not show up, but he also, um, his campaign was sending sort of sneering tweets in the middle of the debate showing that he was at a fundraiser in East Georgia. So he'd rather raise cash out in uh, the outskirts of Augusta than uh, join a televised debate to talk about issues. But the other reason I'd say Herschel Walker was down um, has nothing to do with anything he did, but it was Donald Trump uh, on a tele-rally with David Perdue earlier this week. And you can look at the last episode and listen to the last episode and hear the exact audio. But um, Donald Trump says uh, to David Perdue, not only will um, Stacey Abrams win the election if Governor Kemp is on the ballot, but Herschel Walker will also lose. Um, it is basically an ongoing nightmare scenario for Republicans to have um, the most popular member of the GOP in Georgia still. Donald Trump still polls well above every other Republican that we've ever polled. Um, continue to say that that there will be a bloodbath at the top of the ticket if Brian Kemp is the nominee, um, and that even Herschel Walker, who he's endorsed, by the way, will go down in flames. So there is that. And when I asked Herschel Walker's campaign for some comment, we had a sudden uh, burst of static on the phone, and there was there was some silence. Uh, you, though, will cannot count on any silence from us at the Politically Georgia podcast um, for the next months and years to come. You can count on new episodes of this podcast to come out every Wednesday, Friday, or whenever major news breaks. So we will see you then on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologeticallyATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh,